The book of Revelation is kind of a funny book in that uh, I think predominantly there are two groups of people uh, when it comes to how they approach the book of Revelation. And I liken it to how I approach hunting and a bag of chips, okay? So the one group approach the book of Revelation like I approach hunting, which is to say I don't approach hunting. <laughs> like uh, no interest in it, never gone hunting, wouldn't like to, and therefore I avoid it like the plague. And so there is a group of people when it comes to the book of Revelation, you avoid it like the plague. On the other hand, there are those who approach the book of Revelation like I approach a bag of chips, which is the night is not over until I have consumed a bag of chips. I'm not advocating for that. It's not healthy. That's just how I approach a bag of chips. And I think there are those who approach the book of Revelation like that, where it's like, man, you are way too into that. Like in an unhealthy way, you are way over the top into Chips or the book of Revelation, right? And so um, what we're trying to do, part of this series is get ourselves into the book of Revelation, see that it's rich, see that it has a lot to teach us, um, and that it has an important place to play um, where in one way it's not like there's one less book in the Bible. You know, there's actually 66 books in the, in the Bible. Don't treat the Bible like there's 65 books and avoid Revelation. On the other hand, don't pretend that there's only like one in the whole Bible, and it's just revelation all the time, revelation, no. So, well, challenging to understand because of its literary style. It's written in apocalyptic literature, which is a little bit tricky to understand, but if we would learn what the symbolism means, of course, we discover that it's quite rich. We do well to learn from it and to allow it to contribute to our overall understanding of the Bible. And so this morning, we're looking at the fifth of seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This is our series right now, where we're looking at what Jesus has to say to seven churches and uh, we've called it Letters to the Church. Very creative. And so uh, we're in uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to look at the church in Sardis. So just preliminarily, I'm going to say, this sermon's not for you. It's for everybody on the other side of the highway, okay? <laughs> so what I'm going to do uh, this morning is I'm going to preach at Sardis. And you're going to join me. We've got a lot of critiquing to do, don't we? No, uh, this is written to first century um, uh, Sardis in the province of Asia. One of the seven letters, Jesus writes this one to this ancient church, and here's what he has to say. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name and 
her name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church in Sardis was an active church, a busy church. They were the largest of the seven churches. They were the wealthiest of the seven churches, but they were dead. What I find most interesting about Sardis is this. There's no mention of persecution like we saw in Smyrna and Pergamum. There's no mention of having to deal with the heresies of the Nicolaitans like in Ephesus and Pergamum. And the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira had some who were at fault and needed to be corrected. But in Sardis, they are the dominant group. That's why in verse 4, Jesus says, you still have a few people who have not soiled their garments. Now, we use that term a little bit differently. No one is uh, soiling their garments as we think they would. But what, here's what Jesus means by it. There were only a mere few who hadn't compromised their faith, who hadn't blended so strongly with the city that they were indistinguishable from those who had not been saved. There were only a few who were not dead. By all accounts, this church was free to meet, free to worship. They were wealthy, they were sheltered, and they were dead. See, the temptation for the comfortable is always to take things easy, and that's exactly what happens to Sardis. They either knew what it looked like to follow Jesus, and they were just too lazy to live in grateful response to his grace, or they thought that mediocrity was enough. But those from other churches who were leaving everything to become missionaries to the unreached knew that mediocrity wasn't enough. And those from other churches who were being persecuted for their faith knew mediocrity wasn't enough. But Sardis, in its wealthy, sheltered, casual existence, had become useless. Here's the truth about Sardis. Their church website and social media presence were top-notch. If you were to get a hold of their bulletin, you would look and you would see that there were programs happening all over the place. A full calendar. They even had a reputation in their city and among other churches for being alive. But in fact, they were dead. I find this letter troubling. I find it unsettling to read because we are a relatively large church. We're a wealthy church, both locally and certainly globally speaking. We're not persecuted, but we are a busy church. So how do we know if we're dead like the church in Sardis or not? Here's where we're going. First, we're going to perform an autopsy. I'm going to give 10 descriptions of what constitutes a dead church. Second, and this is, yes, going to get more cheesy. I'm going to yell clear. And we're going to grab a defibrillator. And I will give five simple steps to not being a dead Christian. This sounded really fun to me on Friday. Now it seems a little... <laughs> extra cheeky, 
but we've got to stick with what it says, okay? Five simple steps to not being a dead Christian. They all come from the text, by the way. And third, going to perform a checkup at the end. Give five diagnostic questions. Check the vital signs. Make sure we're all living and breathing, okay? This feels like a 90s sermon, hey? <laughs> and we should have gone all out. Tyson and I were joking about this before. Like, we'd have, like, x-ray images up here. I would have come up in scrubs, you know, like, just, like, too far, you know? Like, let's really go with this. Stretcher. Uh, okay. So first, let's start autopsy. Let's start with the autopsy. I'm going to give you 10 descriptions of what constitutes a dead church or at the very least a church on death's door. I'm, I'm pulling from a few places to compile this. Here's the first. A dead church is a church that clings to the past. I don't just mean appreciates the past. I mean living in the past. Put another way, resting on past ministry success. Um, in a few months, a May long weekend, we're going to celebrate Central's 75th anniversary, and we should. There is a rich history here at Central, 75 years of faithfulness, 75 years of seeing God move, and we should reflect back with great gratitude, and we should tell stories, and we should celebrate Jesus, and look at the past uh, in a warm-hearted way with great appreciation for all that God has done. But you know what we're going to do after that May long weekend? We're going to keep pressing ahead. We'll fix our eyes on, on the present and the future again, and we will keep pressing ahead. See, our history informs our present, it should. But our present should not be focused on our history. Remembering the good old days. It's been put this way. Many a church begins with a man, reaches out with a mission, becomes a movement, but ends up a monument or in the mortuary. Many churches, sadly, begin with life, but end in death. Yesterday's victories are of little value for today's battles. Second description of what constitutes a dead church. Uh, the, a dead church is plagued with disagreements, infighting. And, and a, a marker of a dead church that's plagued with disagreements is not merely that they disagree on things that matter. It's that they disagree about stupid stuff. And their disagreements are, are not the theological in nature or about contending for the faith so much as they are about preference-driven selfishness and personal agendas. Third, Dead church is a church with no clear purpose or vision. The church gathers, but when they gather, they're not even sure what the point is or where it's going or what it's for or a, 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 something that's meant to be accomplished. It's a church on a road to nowhere. Now, these aren't one-offs. Like, if there isn't clear vision in a church, I'm not saying it's a dead church, but these are all piling on as descriptors. Fourth, not adapting to the present needs and opportunities in the community. What I mean by this is I, I've been in, in Chilliwack for 10 years now, and it has changed like crazy in 10 years. So for those of you who have been like born and raised or been here for a good long time, I can't imagine in your mind, through your eyes, how much Chilliwack has changed. But what if the church has never changed and adapted to 
the present needs and opportunities that like exist outside its doors today. Not way back when with the methods we use, but literally the needs that are there now, the opportunities that are there now. See, communities change. And dead churches don't change their ministry. There is no effective ministry to the needs of the present community before them. Just to, to complicate this a little bit, I'll say conversely, dead churches may be all about the social gospel, meaning social justice and helping with the practical needs in the community, but a dead church never connects those to the gospel message itself. It's essentially a non-spiritual, non-profit helps organization. So on the one hand, you might have a social gospel being implemented, but no gospel message, and you might have a gospel message, but zero implementation and engagement in the community. Fifth, God's supernatural power is never seen. Essentially, what makes Christians living isn't observed at all. The activity, the supernatural power of God at work in their midst. Sixth, they rarely pray together. Prayer is really a posture of need. God, we need you. God, we love you. God, we're desperate for you. God, would you work in the, these people's lives and all that kind of stuff. A church that rarely prays together is, is likely a church that's become extremely self-reliant, not reliant on God and his power and his work. Seventh, the preaching in a dead church is ineffective. Preaching should bear fruit. Much of what is called preaching today doesn't make Jesus the point and doesn't make the gospel accessible or the gospel isn't even proclaimed at all. I listen to a ton of podcasts. I listen to things that really inspire me. And I also listen to some stuff that's wildly popular and some stuff that's dubbed as preaching, to be honest, isn't preaching at all because the point isn't Jesus and the message of the gospel isn't even shared. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Eighth, seeing the tenure of its pastors decreasing. I've seen this many times. I have friends who are pastors in churches who have left because really they've, they've, they've tried to invite the congregation into discipleship, into growing in Jesus and they found a congregation not receptive to growth and not receptive to change. They get frustrated or they get hurt or they get burnt out and then they leave. And then another pastor comes in and they invite them into authentic discipleship, which will require growth and change, but they're unwilling. And so they get tired and so they get hurt and so they get burned out and they leave and it and the repetition happens over and over and over again. We've in fact seen this in a couple of the churches that we are in the midst of replanting. It's sad, but it's an indicator when the tenure of the pastors is decreasing. Nine, love of comfort outweighs love for Jesus. I think this was one of the things that plagued the church in Sardis. It was wealthy. It was, had a good image. It was not persecuted. And it seems as though the church itself loved the life in the city more than the life in Jesus. See, when a church becomes domesticated to the culture, it also becomes lethargic to the radical demands of our faith and kingdom ways of Jesus. And tenth, the Great Commission has become the Great Omission, which is a way to say that when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, that that literally just is not happening in a dead church. There's no emphasis on evangelism. Few can remember the last time someone was saved and no one is being called into God's work.
There's the autopsy. But good news, gracious news. This spiritually dead church is not without hope. But what Jesus prescribes is vital. So defibrillators out, here we go. Here's the first step to not being a dead Christian. Words of Jesus, he says, wake up. Now, this literally means be watchful. And, and the history of Sardis, I find fascinating. Sardis was built on a hill. One side of the city, was, there was just a steep cliff beside it. And so um, the guards would rarely, in the history of this city, even cover that side of the city, that side of the wall, because they thought no one can scale the cliffs. Unfortunately... Well, they thought it was impenetrable, it was captured twice. It was ransacked twice, once in 549 BC by Cyrus the Persian, and then once again in 218 BC by Antiochus. On both occasions, enemy troops scaled the cliff at night to find the Sardians hadn't even put guards on duty. So Jesus must have this in mind when he writes, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. See, we're supposed to be found ready, church. We're supposed to be found prepared. We're supposed to be found expectant of Jesus. I heard a true story about a couple in England who parked their car in front of their house every night. And one morning they woke up to find that their car had been stolen they reported it to the police, but strangely, two days later, they wake up in the morning and their car is back. And they discover inside that there is a note, and the note apologizes for stealing the car uh, and thanks them for the use of it for the last two days. And with the letter were two tickets to a show in town. And the couple's like, this is the weirdest thing. And as they drove to the show that night, they talked about how strange this was. They went to the show, and when they came home, they found their house had been robbed. <laughs> Illegal, but brilliant, right? <laughs> Wrong, but kind of awesome. Okay, all right. right. Here's the point be watchful, be ready. Be wise and keep watching. Are you spiritually lethargic or are you awake and staying alert in the faith? Jesus' words are wake up, be alert and stay alert, stay awake. I mentioned it in the, first, in the list of the, what constitutes a dead church. I mentioned it first, living in the past. Man, I was really alive back then. So I'm good now. Man, I did some really awesome things for Jesus back in the day. So I'm retired now from the faith. I really lived for Jesus back then. Man, he did some cool things 20 years ago, didn't he? In our lives. This is a warning. What we see from Jesus here is a call for an active faith in the present, engaged in the spiritual battle now, engaged in the mission of the church today. So wake up. Second, get your strength back. Wake up. Second, get your strength back. Why is Jesus saying that they need to strengthen what little remains? He says it because it's about to die. Jesus says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying, you're dead but not without hope. 
So he's saying you're about to die. The end is near. You do not have forever to figure this out. These are dire circumstances. The faith that was once exhibited by this church at some point back in the day is now slumbering at best or non-existent at worst. Okay, I'm going to read to you. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read for you. And I want you to listen closely to 2 Timothy, the first five verses, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want, as I read this, for you to imagine the person being described in your mind, okay? Don't say it out loud. That'll be really uncomfortable for all of us. Just picture that person in the description. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Kind of got an image of that person in your mind? Is it the quote-unquote worst of society? Is that, is that who you have in your mind? Listen closely to the very next verse, verse 5. Everything I just read, it continues. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The person being described in this text is actually a person who looks like a good Christian. But they deny the gospel, deny the power of the spirit in their lives, working in them, living and active. This is the church in Sardis but what we need to see, we need to understand this properly. We're all sinners saved by grace. You turn to Jesus, you are a sinner saved by grace. That's all of us. But that grace works in us. It's an evidence of our faith in Jesus. A work of sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what works in a life that is being transformed. When I say sanctification, I literally mean the present help we need in fighting sin. Present, today, working. Sanctification is ongoing salvation from the power and practice of sin. It's real. It's alive. It's shaping the believer. Paul warns Timothy to be wary of those who are good at appearances, those who are great and fluent in Christianese. They can, they can talk the church talk. They can talk about living life on life and fellowshipping together all day long. They don't even call you by your first name. They call you brother, sister. They can drop Sunday school answers anytime, anywhere. They look alive, but they're dead. Why? Because they deny the power of God the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. When push comes to shove, they don't trust God, they trust themselves. They don't worship Jesus, they give lip service to Jesus. When hard times come, they don't cling to God, they spurn him. So Jesus is instructing them to get 
their strength back, to strengthen what little remains. Okay, how? Well, Jesus gives the answer with the following three steps to not being a dead Christian. The way you get your strength back is by these next three. Here's the first of the next three. Remember the gospel. Verse three, remember then what you received and heard. Remember what? Specifically, how you're saved, what you're saved from, what you're saved to. I think a major reason that we're here is the practice of remembering. We rehearse the gospel together. We sing the word. We pray the word. We sit under the word. We fellowship with the word. This is what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves. We're reminding each other. We're remembering the gospel. And one of the warnings I think Jesus is giving us is he's reminding us that no one's beyond the need of these reminders. We are such forgetful creatures. We gather weekly because we're actually in danger of forgetting what our lives are all about if we give it up. So Jesus says, remember what you've heard. What did they hear that they are to remember? It's the essential gospel message and everything that flows from it. And you are to remember the gospel by rehearsing the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Jesus lived the life you couldn't live. Jesus died the death you should have died. Where he paid the penalty you should have paid. And he rose so you could one day rise with him. Have you forgotten this? And I don't mean intellectually. I mean, does it stun you anymore? Does it move you? Does it grip you? Does it motivate you anymore? The good news of Jesus Christ, does it stir you anymore? Sammy Rhodes, he's a campus minister down in the States and an author, and he identifies what he considers the top obstacles to evangelism and discipleship, and I think he gets them exactly right. He says the top uh, obstacle to evangelism is this. Assuming the gospel has been heard. When we assume others have heard, we don't go and tell. He goes on. The top obstacle to discipleship is assuming the gospel has been remembered. But clearly, lethargic churches made up of lethargic Christians have forgotten and need to remember the good news. But he doesn't just say, remember what you have heard. He also says, remember what you have received. When you come to Christ, when you repent and believe, when you turn to Jesus for salvation, you do that because you hear the gospel and believe it, but then you receive something from God. And what is that? You receive the Holy Spirit, a seal, a promise, an affirmation, now, Jesus is always really intentional with his descriptors about himself in our texts at the beginning of every church. And it's, oh, it's really interesting of what he says in the beginning of this one. He describes himself, Jesus does, as the one with the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We've heard about the seven stars already, the angels of the church representing really the churches themselves. Norm Funk said you should listen to Matt and what he says the seven stars are because some think it's the pastor and I absolutely agree. No, no. 
I think it's really just the, the angels themselves. But what are the seven spirits? Is Jesus trying to teach us something about the, the, the Godhead in nine persons? God the Father, God the Son, and God the seven spirits? He's not doing that. This is a part of apocalyptic literature. We have to figure out, like, what exactly does this mean? Because this isn't really typically how I hear about God described. And so the seven spirits, just like the seven churches, is a representation of perfection. So when there's letters to seven churches, it's, it's really to all churches for all time. And when Jesus talks about the seven spirits, what is he saying? He's talking about the complete, whole, perfect Holy Spirit. Now, when I say that, some of you get a little uncomfortable. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. You're like, whoa, 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 it's going to get charismatic in here, right? I, I believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible, okay? Okay, we're all set. That's comfortable. That's, that's the way I like it. But here's the problem. Sardis is dead because their lives are void of the Holy Spirit. I read, this is a few years old now, but I, I read some Barna research, an American poll was done, and the results blew my mind. Almost couldn't believe it. The results said this, 87% of American evangelicals say they have not felt or tasted of the presence of God in the last decade. In the last decade. Is that you? Man, I pray that that's not us, 87%. But when is the last time you had an encounter with God? The presence of God making himself known to you. Has there ever been a time in your life when you sensed the power of God in you? You prayed for healing for someone and God healed them. You shared the gospel with someone and they were receptive. You sensed the Holy Spirit guiding you to say something to someone or do something for someone and it was exactly what they needed. You were in a situation that would have otherwise seemed hopeless and desperate, but God gave you a sense of calm and peace in it. I could go on with the descriptors, but, but have you sensed the presence of God working, manifesting himself in your life? Look, I know we don't really live there day to day necessarily. But according to the poll, not only do we not live there very often, most Christians haven't lived there in a decade. No wonder churches could be described as dead. Perhaps some of us have rejected the gentle nudges of the Holy Spirit for so long that we don't even really sense God's presence at all anymore. And Jesus says, we must strengthen what little remains and remember. So to get our strength back is actually to remember that we don't live the Christian life alone and in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to remember the message and the messenger. We remember the gospel and the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are to remember, fourth, we are to hold on to the gospel. We are to keep it. We are to keep it. He says in verse three, remember then what you received and heard, keep it. And maybe you've heard this concept before. We never drift towards anything worthwhile. We don't accidentally arrive at something meaningful. We never slide into truth, but we can slide into error. We can drift. 
We can compromise, compromise. It's compromise we drift into. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch and keep watching. We can slide by subtracting from the gospel. We can drift by adding to the gospel. Instead, we're to keep it, hold it, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to us. See, we're not merely to receive Jesus. We are to cling to Jesus. Jesus in John 15 said, abide in me and I in you As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Cling to me, Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary. Hold on to the gospel and keep it. Fifth, repent. Jesus calls five of the seven churches to repent. Like I can't get away from that. Repentance means to stop, turn around, to change direction, right? Our attitudes, our actions, those things, turning from those, repenting of sin and turning to Jesus for mercy and strength. That is repentance. Some people look at repentance in a very negative light. I think they do that because they see it as an indictment on who they are and how they're living. And therefore they see it as a threat. When they are told that they should repent, They recoil at it because they think that's a threat to me and my ways and who I am. But repentance is a beautiful thing. Others others see repentance for the grace that it is. Yes, we sin, but Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to God. Putting off the old, what kills, and putting on the new, what brings life. Jesus began his ministry. We see this in Mark 1 declaring, this is how Jesus starts his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I'm a pastor. I'm part of a national church planting network. I'm a part of a coalition for gospel centrality and ministry. And that earns me nothing before God if I am not a man who repents of my sin daily. Repent and keep on repenting. I am a sinner in need of grace. Repentance is a daily task, and it's not a sinister one. It's not a threat. It's a grace. You know you need to repent, right? And keep on repenting. Jesus warns, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus uses this imagery numerous times in Revelation and in the Gospels, and it's not actually a reference to the second coming of Jesus, but coming to you in judgment. And it's gracious of Jesus to give this warning. I'm only a good dad if I see danger lurking and don't warn my boys. Want to know if you're a follower of Jesus? Quick litmus test. You know you're a follower of Jesus if you welcome the opportunity to repent. Followers of Jesus are filled with joy at the opportunity of repentance. Followers of Jesus are grateful. It leads them into worship when they are given the opportunity to repent. Sins paid for by the blood of Christ. My sin is great. His grace is greater. His mercy is more. I can turn to him for forgiveness and know that he forgives because he died and paid the penalty for my sin on the cross and it is finished. 
So I invite you to repent and to make repentance your daily practice. What a gift, what a mercy. Heed the warning. Finally, really quickly, I want to just share the promises that Jesus gives in this text because there are a few in Sardis who have remained faithful and that must cost them, right? That must press them. That must be difficult for them. Why? Why hold on? Why continue to keep the faith? Well, Jesus gives some beautiful promises. First, he says in verse four, they will walk with me. This is an image of friendship with Jesus. In eternity, walking with Jesus in friendship. Second, they will be clothed in white garments. This is an image of purity, right? I think it's really kind of lost on us, except at a wedding where the bride wears white. We're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day, but that's beside the point. I think in eternity, we're clothed in white garments all year long. It's really just imagery. And what's the imagery of? Purity. And then Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. This is an image of security. Think of Jesus having your name actually written down. And that he will say to God the Father and his angels, I know her. I know him. She, she's mine. He's mine. And then from the lips of Jesus, say your name. This is the Christian hope. We will walk with Jesus in perfect relationship. We will be clothed in white in perfect purity. And Jesus will declare our names and we will be perfectly secure in him. What a hope. What a reason to persevere. Only do not slumber. Ensure your faith isn't dead. No more games. It's time for your checkup. I'm simply going to ask you five questions. I want you to just sit in a little bit. Look at your watch for a minute. Check your vital signs. See if you're doing okay. Make sure you're breathing. It's what we want. Here's the first question. What place does Jesus occupy in your life? To ask it another way, who is enthroned? Second question. And I asked the second question because they had this, this church had the reputation of being alive, but they were dead. So a question I want to ask you, ask us, is does your reputation meet reality? They had a reputation of being alive, they were dead. If you have a reputation of being alive, is it true? Third question, it goes right along with it. Are your works hiding a dead heart? Because we can play the religious games. We can say the right things. We can have the right outward appearances. But are those things merely hiding a dead heart? They don't earn us anything. Christ earned it all for us. Do we believe that? Fourth, if Jesus were to take away his spirit, would it make any difference in your life? Would there be a gaping hole in you? 
Would the way you navigate your days be radically different if Jesus were to take away his spirit from you? Fifth, when was the last time I, when was the last time you shared Jesus with another person? I mean, this church wasn't persecuted and yet they're in the same province. Why weren't they persecuted? Because they weren't pressing. They weren't letting it cost. They weren't letting it be, make, they weren't letting their faith ever get uncomfortable for them. They loved their comfort. This is a really simple question. When was the last time you stepped out vulnerably for your faith and shared it with someone else? I'd like to close this morning, gather it all together with the words from, uh, with uh, these words from the famous radio preacher, Chuck Swindoll. A dead church lacks evangelistic and missionary zeal. Turned inward on their own needs, preferences, and comfort, unhealthy churches give half-hearted attention to the conversion of the lost. In contrast, living churches devote time, resources, and energy to both local evangelism and worldwide missions. In the message to Sardis, we saw Christ revealed as the life giver. He alone grants spiritual vitality to those with a comatose or dying faith. In light of his urgent alarm to Sardis, all of us who tend towards spiritual stupor must turn from stale religious routine and embrace the abundant life only Jesus can provide. He extends a sincere invitation to you right now. If you feel the stiffness of spiritual rigor mortis setting in, take Christ's words to heart. Wake up and declare your devotion. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I pray uh, for life where there is death. Jesus, I thank you for um, for your mercy in giving a warning about dead faith, stiffness. Now, Jesus, I pray that uh, you would move powerfully among us by your spirit. Jesus, that you would give us a hunger for you, a gratitude for the gospel, that it would be the song we sing day after day after day, reminding ourselves of the gospel which would lead us day after day after day into repentance, but a grateful repentance, a gratitude. Walking with you in the highs and lows of life, walking with you day in, day out, seeking you first. All for you, Jesus. I ask that for us. And God, I pray with a lot of love for other churches in our community. I don't know the spiritual temperature of them all, but Lord, I just pray that we could be united with one common voice that we might see the Fraser Valley transformed. Jesus, I ask that you would work in our sister churches in this community, that there would be life, that the gospel would go forward, that you would bring transformation. We ask all of this in the powerful, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.